Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm genuinely delighted to have as my guest, Lee Ashton. She's the founder and CEO of The Sales Consultancy, and she's also author of the book, I Sell, which is about unlocking a winning sales mindset. Lee, welcome. I am absolutely delighted to be here, Marcus. Thank you. Excellent. So, Lee, could you give 60 seconds on your background so people know the journey that you've gone through? Okay. Like most people, fell into sales by accident, was really successful, really loved it, and then became sales leader. And that's when my challenges all started because I thought, geez, why won't people do stuff that's really good for them? Which led me down a very interesting path which was all around psychology. I realized mindset was the most important thing. And so my trauma and nightmare as a sales leader turned into a quest and a journey and a mission to change the way that sales is done in the corporate world. Excellent. So Lee, mindset, what what is it, first of all? To me, it's different things to different people, but it's about having an understanding of how your mind works and how to control it rather than it controlling you so that you know what your preferences are, you know how to best motivate yourself, you have an understanding of yourself as a human being, not someone that just does and is a victim to that mindset because Mm -hmm. mindset can be changed. It's not a fixed thing. It's an evolving and growing thing. So as you develop your mindset, you can grow with it. Okay. I mean, one of the things I've been teaching for years is that you will only perform to the level that your self-concept will allow. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the big challenges here is people tend to run an inner script, an inner dialogue, where it tends to be hypercritical. It tends to conflate role failure. It has a tendency to turn role failure into a personality defect. So let's address that first of all. What is the difference between who you are and what you do? Well, who you are is your identity. Let's call it identity. It's how you think of yourself as an individual. And it's also the patterns and processes that are embedded in us because there are certain characteristics that evolve between birth and about seven years old that is our hard wiring that causes us to think and behave in a certain way. They're not good or bad. They're just programs. So our bodies are hardware and think of these programs as your operating system, you know, your OS or Microsoft or whatever you're using. So we've got all this stuff going on inside us that is difficult to change in terms of programming, but there's a lot going on inside us that we actually create ourselves. So the the beliefs that cause us to behave in a certain way, you know, what we do, the behaviours are as a result of some of these patterns, but more importantly, it's the story that we tell ourselves. So it's like we think these stories are cast in stone and that they're 
determined and that's who we are. But actually, we are the stone carriers and we carry the chisel that that writes in that stone. I like that analogy. So again, it's really important to understand that early childhood scripting up to about the age of six or seven tends to repeat on a loop. And this is the inner dialogue. This is our judgment, our prejudices, our biases. And up until about the age of 25, um, we keep chiseling away and developing this bigger worldview and where we sit in it, what our rights are, what we believe we are capable of. And this is where we start creating a prison for our, in our own minds in terms of our own capability. I'm good, but I'm not that good. Or um, it was lucky. And we kind of find that when, when we talk about self-concept, we have a level at which we think we can perform. I remember years ago when I was in recruitment, I averaged billings of around 30 grand a month. And one month I did 96,000. And for the next three months, I couldn't close my own fly because I billed nothing. Um, and in the fourth month, I started billing again because now I got back to my average of 30 grand. And I see this happen all the time in salespeople. They land a whale or a bluebird, and then all of a sudden they can't sell their way out of a wet paper bag for uh, several months. And so you get these peaks and troughs. And this is a function of self-concept. And up until about the age of 25, we have these scripts that are being built in. But our natural tendency, even if we do change, unless we replace the neural pathways with stronger ones, is to revert back to what we learned first. And so we can learn new skills, but until we turn them into habit, and those habits then drive our belief system, there is always a chance that we'll backslide. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. Because what happens is these patterns keep repeating until, I mean, if they serve you, if these patterns serve you, that's fantastic. But sometimes they serve you when you create them and then they become useless and, in fact, an inhibitor, a barrier to really great performance. And there are so many examples I've come across when working with salespeople, sales leaders, and business owners, where they're doing more of something that isn't working simply because it used to work. So that's for me where sometimes, and actually often, people have a lack of self-awareness of what they are doing. And this pattern will keep running and running and running until the person wakes up and goes, this is a pile of crap. Why am I doing this? I call this working harder and dumber. Part of the problem is that if it made you successful in the past, but the environment in which you operate has changed. So um, we only have to look at what's gone on in COVID. All those road warriors who built their self-concept around being great in front of the customer and now having to operate virtually through Zoom or Teams or whatever. And now they feel that their superpower has been taken away from them. And they carry on doing what they've always done, but they haven't really adapted to the virtual environment. And so they spend a lot of their time on calls complaining about it and making excuses for why they're not at their best. It's crazy. 
the reality is when Darwin was talking about survival of the fittest, he was talking about how you adapt to the current environment, not being the brawniest or the biggest or the strongest. Otherwise, our ancestors wouldn't have evolved from being shrews to us. And the problem with a lot of our imprinted behavior is that it has um, a magnetism, um, a real pull, because we kind of crave what made us successful in the past. And uh, Lee touched on it earlier, that they do what's easy rather than difficult work. And uh, I know uh, you're a fan of Michael Brody Waite as well as me. And he talks about doing difficult work and surrendering the outcome and learning how to say no to things. One of the things you have to learn how to say no to is your fixed belief system. Mm-hmm. Um, because often those beliefs, whilst they may have once served you, no longer serve you. And that's like beating your head against a brick wall and then blaming the brick that your head is hitting for your headache. <laughs> that's great. That's a great analogy. So tell me this. You said in your intro that you were really successful as a salesperson, and then you became a manager, and that's when your trouble began. So tell me this. When you were a salesperson, did you understand why you were being successful? Oh, I had no idea. None at all. And there's one underlying belief that I did have as a salesperson that I think is just in my nature. And I really love to help people fix things, to solve problems, you know. And when I got into sales, I didn't quite know what I was doing because, you know, I said I fell into it by accident. And because I was a bit nervous and had never done anything like that before, but I was very good at chatting, what I found was I would just chat with people. So. I was very fortunate that the first sales role I did um, was walking around a building surveying certain areas. So I, there would be a lot of time for chit-chat. So I'd say, what do you do outside of work? You know, have you got family? Have you got pets? Have you got, you know, and I would find out about the person. And in that time, um, it would stop me from having to look clever or smart, just be like a natural human being, just interested in them. I didn't realise how important and crucial that was until much later. But no one ever sat me down and had a conversation with me. I had to figure it out myself and there was no internet back then. And because I am always looking at everything I do and thinking, how could I do this better? What would make this better? I'm constantly evaluating myself. Because it was working, I wasn't doing that. It wasn't until I became a sales manager that I thought, I'm going to share everything with my team and we're going to be the most successful team in history. And I found that people fell into three camps. The first camp was Lee, that's amazing. I'm going to try that. And off they would go and try that. These are like the 10 percenters at the top that we've spoken about, Marcus. Yeah. Then the next group was, Lee, that's 
brilliant. I'm going to go off and do that. And they would go away and carry on doing what they'd done forever. And the third camp was, that won't work for me on my territory. And so I, that's when I thought, why wouldn't someone even try something? Why would someone say they're going to do something and then not do it? And then that led me down reading lots of books. And back then it was Nightingale, Conan and the cassettes. And, and, yeah. and uh, you know, I fortunately came across people that gave me insight that it's nothing to do with skills. You can train skills, but if people haven't got the mind to do those skills, doesn't matter how good the training is, how great the skill is, they're not going to do it. <laughs> well, th- this points to a really fundamental understanding of human behavior. Whether you think you can or whether you think you can't, you're right. And more often than not, your biggest competitor is the noise in the six inches between your ears. It's that inner dialogue that's telling you what's possible, what's not possible, what you can do, what you can't do, what you have the right to do, what you don't have the right to do your relative uh, position of power and influence with respect to your customer and your prospect. Do you, uh, you know, fundamentally important question uh, for every salesperson is, do you see yourself as your prospect's equal, even on your worst day? Because in my experience, few salespeople do. They put the customer on a pedestal, which automatically abdicates control and gives away your power. And if you give away your power, then what you project is lack of confidence. You don't feel that you have a right. Uh, By putting them on a pedestal, you put yourself in the child position and you put them in the parent position. And you get reflected back what you project out. So if you project out weakness, nervousness, uncertainty, doubt, self-doubt, then why should the prospect trust you? Because they come to us for leadership, they come to us for a safe pair of hands, and they come to us because they cannot solve their own problem without help. The moment you abdicate that power, you move from being a servant helper to being a commodity provider. And then that's, I mean, you just give away your point of difference immediately because you differentiate in how you sell, not what you sell. An MSP, an IT support company, an ERP vendor, a CRM vendor, they all do pretty much the same thing. So it's what they're looking for is, and I, I, in fact, I interviewed a CFO friend of mine yesterday for a number of clients of mine. And he said that he is looking for a partner when a vendor comes to him, whether it's an accountancy firm, a lawyer, an IT company, he's looking for a partner. He's not looking for a supplier. And the problem is, if you behave like a supplier, you will get treated like the commodity you are. Your thoughts? That's honestly, it's really interesting you say that because we are giving away clues all the time, even when we don't say anything, you know, and and when we do say something, we're giving clues. Now, I'm just going to go into slightly woo-woo territory for a minute. And and it's not woo-woo, but people may think it is. 
And that is all of us have an electromagnetic field that surrounds us. And when people are in rapport, you'll notice that they start matching and mirroring physically because the electromagnetic fields have merged. Now, what people may have experienced in the past is when you're in really great rapport, you will ask a question to a client or prospective client you don't know where the question comes from, but you it just you're compelled to ask it. And you then when they the customer hears that, you can tell that, wow, that's really a great question. And I don't believe that you've just mind read. I believe that when two electromagnetic fields merge, there is information passing backwards and forwards that you don't consciously um, are, you know, you don't consciously get it, but it is just giving you information. And so when somebody's having those doubts, having those fears, thinking that, oh, my God, this is a C-level person and I've got to be a certain way, you know what? You're transmitting that to the other person. Absolutely. Even if you don't say anything wrong, the energy at which you say it will land in that other person in a way that they may not even consciously get, but they just don't like you as much as the other salesperson. So I think that knowing yourself and going in with you are bringing something to the table the customer is bringing something to the table and together you can make magic is a much healthier way of going into one of those meetings. Excellent. I think part of the problem is that whilst most people are fixated on technique and tactics, the reality is that you are dealing with human beings. And unless you have a high degree of understanding of human behavior and you understand the psychology, the technique is just a move and that's doing something to someone. Whereas if you're using a technique or a tactic in order to trigger an advancement uh, for the prospect or the customer, then you're not really doing something for them. So it feels negatively manipulative. And this is where uh, my frustration with the sales training profession generally sits because they fixate on a system, on technique, on skills. And skills without the psychological foundation, are you'll get 10% increase, maybe 30% at a real push. In my experience, if you teach the fundamental psychological principles and the values and you come to the sale with the correct intent, when you apply those techniques, I've routinely seen my clients grow 300, 500, 800, 1200, 1400, 5,000% in a year because they were applying the technique in the context of how they serve the customer And what they're doing all the time um, is they are reading the customer, uh, recognizing the the unconscious signals 
that the customer is generating. And the net result of that is that they are relevant, they're timely, they're bringing value, as opposed to trying to pitch their product, trying to deliver their quota, uh, all of which is selfish. It's like you know when people uh, say, well, you've got to qualify for BANT. BANT is bollocks. The problem is that if the first thing, you, you know, or early in the conversation, you're saying, do you have a budget? You're the decision maker. Uh, do you have a project? When do you want to get started? That's all selfish qualification. That's right. Now, you can elicit that information, but it needs to be contextually appropriate. It needs to be delivered in a timely way, and it needs to be done in a way that the other person feels serves them and their interests. Because at the end of the day, no one buys product. No one buys services. They buy outcomes. They're, they're coming to you because they want a better future. Um, and if you don't have that mindset of service, if you don't have that mindset of seeing how your offering is going to help them solve their bigger problem, then the best you can hope to do is pick up scraps. And when it comes to renewal, you've got a very low chance of renewing. Yeah. You know, I, I call that navigating the customer's map. And it's a much healthier way of doing sales. So you can have all of your techniques. You're so spot on, Marcus. It's about when I'm working with salespeople and talking about the psychology of discovery questions, you know, that open questions. I said, you can have a list of questions, but let me tell you, it's not going to get you anywhere because a great question is one that's relevant at that moment in, in time to the person that you're communicating with. So navigating another person's map means that you have to relinquish any attachment to your own map, go into theirs find out what that landscape is. And I say, when you ask these questions in a way that is in their space, they create the flow and your question has to be relevant to the previous response. Then you start getting a real sense of what that picture is and how you can support that person in achieving what they really want to achieve. So you got leave your map, you go into theirs, and then through sharing stories of how other customers have got exactly what they have, you know, want, then they feel more compelled to move with you towards your map. So you're kind of leading them through stories of other customers' success. Well, e even stronger than that is having them tell their story. Now, one of the big, you know, for the last 17 years, I've um, come from an environment where I was taught and I taught pain, pain, pain equals dollar, 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 pound, pound, pound. And that's fine and dandy, but no one buys pain or pain removal. Uh, they buy the better future. They buy the outcome. So this framework, and it is literally a framework, it is sheet music, Okay, so don't necessarily use it verbatim, but we need to understand what's the biggest problem that they are try, uh, trying to face. Uh, what are the struggling moments that they're experiencing? And what is it about that problem that they find most difficult? What keeps them from their intended desired outcome, the better future? What does the obstacle that they're facing prevent them from achieving by way of that intended outcome? How does it prevent them? What are they doing today 
and what do you want to do about it? And in doing that, you get them to give you their narrative, paint their picture. Again, a fundamental rule of human behavior is people do things for their reasons, not your reasons. They buy for their reasons, not your reasons. You can't convince them to do anything or buy anything. They have to convince themselves. So what great stories do and what great questions do and great listening does Mm. is it allows the other person to be heard, to be understood, and to feel felt. Because as human beings, we want other people to feel what we are feeling. And we're social primates. There's no getting around it. You can try and fight against 300 million years of evolutionary hardwiring. You're not going to do it. And you're not a good enough salesperson to be able to do that. So you may as well tap into that hardwiring and that programming and allow the other person to tell their story so that you can work with them to co-develop the solution that they want. And then they're never arguing with your data because it's always their data. And they never argue with that. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's what great discovery questions do. It allows that customer to tell those stories. But what's really interesting, Marcus, is sales leaders are not doing that with their salespeople. So where some salespeople are not doing it with customers, those people then become sales leaders who don't do that with their salespeople. And I always say to sales leaders, your biggest customer is your team. Would you talk to a customer the way you talk to your salespeople? Would you not listen to, you know, how can you even lead or motivate people that you don't even know, that you only talk KPIs with? I mean, how on earth are you going to sell into them the desire to, to like, do something greater than what they're doing now? Well, the, the one thing I would take issue with you there, and it come, refers back to what I just said, is you cannot motivate your salespeople. Mm-hmm. Motivation comes from within them. So what you need to understand is their motivation. And in fact, one of the, th- uh, the journeys that I've gone on recently is to really uncover motivation. And there's a fabulous tool that I'm using now called Motivational Maps. I um, know it. They're wonderful tools. In terms of helping to frame how you coach and how you use someone's motivation in order to help them find a way that works for them to modify their behavior and change that behavior into skills and those skills into habits is by constantly being able to refer back to how they are actually motivated. So one of the things that really frustrates me, and it comes back to, uh, comes to my next question is in so many job descriptions for managers, it's must be able to motivate um, your sales team. It's a point, it's a redundant request. And this then comes to the next stage of our discussion, which is as a manager, you didn't know what made you successful as a salesperson. You you had inklings, but you didn't have the framework. You didn't have the structure. And what I see so often is managers are top salespeople who've been promoted into management without that runway, without that training without an understanding of how to recruit well, how to onboard well, how to train, how to mentor, 
how to hold accountable, and above all, the superpower is coaching. And almost no training in how to coach or how to be a phenomenally surgically empathic listener. So let's explore that because I know this is a huge area for you. So what what advice would you give to someone aspiring to become a manager in the next 12 to 24 months? I would say read, learn, view videos on compassionate leadership. Understand yourself. I've got a real bugbear. I'm not saying all of these leadership things are this way, and I really don't want to be make a sweeping generalisation, but those leaders who were in the armed forces who come out and do these leadership things, this is how you lead people. And I have a real concern that salespeople are not like soldiers. Those soldiers follow orders and they have to do things a certain way. And leaders from the armed forces are, are like a lot of sales leaders who are just doing that. You know, I'm not saying they're not great leaders, but they've got people who comply. And that's not the same as a sales team. So I would say be very careful what you look at so that you don't become one of those leaders that focuses on results only. Find out about human uh, behavior. Find out about the psychology of leadership. Explore what you do well and understand what is it that works? What is it that doesn't work? Become really curious in other people's behaviors. Observe other people and Speak with them about the reason that they do certain things. So that would be how I would start. If I was right now wanting to go into leadership, is I would study all of that. Start coaching more junior members of the team, coaching, mentoring, sharing your expertise and developing the ability to do the right thing, not the easy thing, because the right thing is rarely the easy thing. You know, if you observe a bad behavior as a sales leader, it's easy to ignore that and hope it goes away. But it rarely does. And it just gets worse and comes back and bites you on the backside. So that would be my advice. There is so much out there that you can get freely because of the internet, because of books, Audible, stuff like that. And also, if you have a leader that you have access to, that you see exhibits the type of qualities that just stand out, that just shine, somehow they have a level of harmony in their team, a level of cohesiveness, they have a team that go the extra mile, then you know you have a leader that really cares about their people and is coaching them and developing them and they're growing. If you've got access to a leader like that, even if it's not your leader, then I would ask to have conversations with them. You know, grab a coffee, jump on Zoom, just say, I'm really interested in leadership. I love the way that you lead your team. Would you mentor me? Okay. So certainly when I'm working with my clients and 
getting the next generation through of managers. We work on an 18 to 24 month runway where specifically the last person in is responsible for onboarding the next person in the team. So they start to learn how to coach. They start to learn how to train. And then we build those skills and that exposure up so that they run sales meetings. So we run a daily huddle. And each person is responsible for running the huddle throughout the course of a month. And then they have to do a 10, 15-minute training piece on the stuff they find the hardest to deal with or the problem that they're facing the most. Because in order to teach it, uh, you have to really understand it. And then they get feedback so that they have to learn how to cope with constructive criticism. And then uh, they start to run sales pipeline meetings so that they learn how to manage that side of things. We set up accountability partnerships in order to ensure that they understand that accountability is something you do to yourself and you report to others rather than something that's done to you. So we take them through this process so that by the time they move into management, they've lived it, they've made all the mistakes in a safe environment with guidance, and they don't suddenly fall flat on their ass. Uh, which is what normally happens when you move into management. The majority of times where you promote the top performer, you lose a good salesperson and you gain a mediocre or a terrible manager who does exactly what was done to them. And um, often that's beating the chest, pounding the table, screaming about filling the pipeline, and then focusing on when's it going to close instead of really focusing on the important things like managing the middle of the funnel understanding that they need to have a bigger picture of their account. You know, a lot of the clients I'm working with at the moment, these scale-ups, their original starting point is we've got to go out and sell software. But their software is just one cog in the overall um, machine. So if it's in cyber, it's just one element of their security um, uh, objectives and outcomes. And then that security is just one part of their IT. And IT is there to enable the business and to help enable the C-suite and the executive team's strategy. And if you don't understand that bigger picture, then all you ever pick up are the scraps and you're always the commodity. But if you think that bigger picture, then you can start to see where you are relevant and how you can help replace stuff so, for example, if, if we think about cyber, one element is passwords. Now, passwords are actually 40 years old. They're redundant to a large extent. They're unnecessary. Now, if you have passwords throughout your organization, on average in a corporate, they are spending three and a half minutes a day filling out passwords. Now, if you've got 70,000 people, that's about, about 250,000 man minutes a day. Wow. Spent filling out passwords, adding no value. Then, on average, there's at least one password reset, which takes 10, p uh, 10 minutes for the, uh, the user and 10 minutes for the operator on the help desk. So that's another 1.4 million man minutes lost. Okay. Every single one of those calls costs the business, and there are 70,000 of them, $50 a piece. So 50 times 70,000 is 3.5 million. 
there's three and a half million of sunk cost plus the opportunity cost plus all those minutes uh, of 250,000 uh, a day times 240 working days. Now you're talking the equivalent of 500 full-time employees tied up doing a useless activity, which actually increases your vulnerability. <laughs> now, by removing passwords, you can remove the password manager software, the VPN. So what is it that you can replace? How can you affect multiple areas of the business? Now, we could go in and we could try and peddle a password-free cyber solution, or we can have that other conversation. Now, if we just peddle the product, then we're stuck in IT. And IT has to go with a begging bowl every time they want to spend some money. But now if I'm creating 510 full-time employee equivalents, and I'm saving them three and a half million pounds a year on help desk costs, and I'm replacing probably another 70,000 licenses five, six times over with VPNs and all that other stuff, and now I've saved them another 10 million, before we uh, even start the conversation with IT, I've now got a business case that the CFO, who is effectively a talent spotter, because that's their secondary job, apart from protecting the business from stupidity and bad spending and you know, in spending the money, they're a talent spotter. Now, if I can go to them and say, look, here's the equivalent of 510 new employees and 13 million in savings, and you can get rid of all the support contracts and everything else with that. Is that a conversation that's worth having? Yeah, for sure. And yeah, the frame of that is just delicious. You know, it's tantalizing, isn't it? So, you know, when you can, framing is a skill that is so underused, I believe, in sales because what, you know, for the last, I don't know how long, it seems like too long. It's all been about pitching and having a great slide deck. And I interviewed a fascinating lady, uh, Suzanne Jacobs, 17 years at KPMG, senior partner. The interview with her was really eye-opening because our current management model is 300 years old. And it started in the late 1700s um, as the Industrial Revolution started to kick in. And what we were looking at is how do we take people from the countryside, shove them into factories, and make them productive um, in, in that kind of environment. Um, but the reality is, in a knowledge economy, doesn't really work so well. So you end up dehumanizing. Uh, but what you also end up doing is you focus on the result over which you have no control. You only can control the input, the behavior. Mm. You can't control the output. The output is a byproduct of the input. And if you don't have highly engaged employees, then you are potentially losing 430% profit per employee. Mm. That's the difference between the highly engaged employees and uh, only marginally or actively disengaged employees a 430% improvement in profit per employee, a 290% higher uh, revenue per employee, a 40% lower churn rate, a 20% higher daily productivity, um, and the earnings per share, 316% year-on-year compound. Mm. 
Now, that's yeah, what definitely. that's what this fluffy holiday camp kind of thinking will earn you. So if you are a cold-blooded, shark-eyed capitalist, think again, because that 300-year-old model is redundant. Yeah. You know, it starts at school. I don't know if you know this, Marcus, but the peak age of asking questions is four years old. Wow. Four years old. And that because when kids go to school, they are trained not to ask questions, just to answer them. And so that was in the time when we were like teaching kids to go and work in these jobs where there's no debate. You just did what you were told. But really, it's not like that anymore. And uh, we want people to ask questions. We want people to be curious. We want people to challenge the status quo. And yet, uh, you know, if you train them at schools to not ask any questions, then we're creating a problem at a early stage of somebody's life that is going to go with them unless they get the hard wiring to be super curious, you know, that growth mindset. And I do believe that that whole, you know, the the job of a sales leader is to unleash something that is in every human being, you know, not necessarily to create it, but to be able to get that door open so that you unleash that motivation, you unleash that inspiration, you unleash something that's in them, you bring it alive so that people can show up as their best selves. And not that they're going to be in the top 10%, but if someone's at chapter one, you can't compare them to someone who's at chapter 25. It's like, how do you get them from chapter one and excited to go into chapter two and then into chapter three of their life book? So so that's the way that I see it. And I think old systems are so out of date. Not, you know, in, in the corporate world, it's some of my clients have had toxic cultures where we've had to create a nucleus that it surrounds the sales culture, surrounds the sales teams, and they can be a certain way of thinking and they can observe that toxic culture and not get sucked into it. So in ICEL, um, you have a really important chapter around how beliefs impact your thinking and your results. So how are beliefs created? They're an assumption that we make having had an experience. So behavior drives belief. Well, it may not be your behavior. You may have observed a behavior that then creates a reaction in your body that says all people who are this are that. So you create this equation. You create something that I call a complex equivalent. This equals that, but it doesn't really. You've just connected them together. So So it's false equivalent. Yeah, that's right. So, So if, for example, you're picked on at school by a person who's Scottish, for example, you might think all Scottish people are horrible and you have that belief. Sorry, I don't know why I said Scottish. So if you're Scottish, I'm really sorry about that. Yeah, very um, they could they could have been they could have been any any country. Um, so you create this belief, 
and then you carry that with you and you hold it to be true. But at the same time, there are beliefs that you let go of. You know, for example, you you can't do everything as a child, but you have an innate built-in system that wants to keep learning when you're a toddler. So eventually you master something and then you're able to say, oh, well, that belief that I can't do it, actually I can do it now. But things like, and sorry about this, please don't play this in front of small children, we all believed in Santa and as adults we don't believe in Santa. So we can change. Oh, you've ruined it for me. I know, I know. Everyone says. <laughs> now you're going to tell me the tooth fairy and the Easter bunny don't exist. Yes. Yeah. Well, no, no. They're they're real. They're real. So. Um, Ruella Deville, you are. <laughs> so, the thing to remember is we create beliefs. They are not. Sometimes they're imposed on us. You know, like beliefs. Well, like, often they're inherited. Yeah, that's right. So, so I've got a friend who is. When he was young, he wanted to learn to play the guitar when he was a child. His mum said, Martin, no one in our family has been musical. So don't even go there. Well, you know, he walked away from the guitar and he didn't learn it, but he kept being drawn to it. Now he's like a musician. He used to run folk clubs. He's got the biggest music collection of anyone I know. He's And he's not a DJ or anything like that. And he so loves music. But he's, if he does listen to his mum who said, Martin, no one in our family's ever been musical, he could have given up on something that gives him an enormous amount of pleasure now. So that then points to another really important responsibility of managers that they need to be so careful about the, the message that they send and the biases they bring. Because without paying attention to their own scripting, chances are inadvertently they will start imprinting beliefs and uh, biases and limiting beliefs on their salespeople. Yes. And I come across that. I have, I remember many years ago when I first started working with one of my clients, I went in to deliver mindset training and when I was sharing certain stuff, they said, well, you can't do that with our process. And I said, well, I've, I've read your pro, I've read all 33 pages of your process and nowhere have I read that. And this isn't changing what the process is anyway. And there was this whole belief that you couldn't do this, you couldn't do that, that was not written anywhere. Even the person that created the process had not ever said that. They're myths, they're urban myths. (laughs) This again is very, very interesting because what are the unwritten, unspoken policies that we create within our sales culture because of those beliefs? What is it we tolerate that tells people within the team what the policy is? Because uh, very often, culture is defined by its policies, whether they're written or not. We don't do this. That's not how we do it in this company. No one in our industry does this. And part of the problem here is that I don't think managers spend enough time in reflection, asking Mm. themselves, is this belief really true? Mm. What evidence do I have 
that this is true? Is it always true? Is there an exception? Is there any reason why we couldn't make it an exception? And I, I think part of the challenge here is that if you want better answers, you absolutely have to ask better questions. And because so many managers, and I think middle managers have the shittiest job of all, because they're put upon from beneath and from above, and everybody, they, they have the most precarious role there is. I have a huge amount of empathy for middle managers, even though that they, you know, in many cases they suffer from ignorance. And our five biggest competitors are fear, apathy, ignorance, denial, and ego. And ignorance is the most forgivable. And it's also the easiest one to fix. Yeah. Educate yourself. If you're a manager who is not reading at least one or two books a month, not putting yourself on training programs, not getting a coach and a mentor of your own, then chances are you're not evolving. And if you're not evolving, you know, there's, there's an old proverb, which is if you're green, you grow. If you're ripe, you rot. And there's an awful lot of rotten fruit in the management profession. So as managers, we have to be constantly challenging ourselves. Uh, when was this true? Is it still true? Is there a better way? What can we do more of? What can we do less of? What should we stop doing? What should we start doing? But very few managers are actually putting themselves in that awkward position. And uh, Keith Cunningham, in his fabulous book, The Road Less Stupid, has one exercise which every manager and every leader and honestly, every salesperson should do, which is for 40 minutes a week, you take a pad of paper, a pen, and a quiet room with no distractions, no phone, no email, no computer, and you turn up with one question at the top of your page and you spend 40 minutes in serious, deep thought trying to answer that question. And off the back of that question will come many, many, many more questions, all of which then need their 40 minutes. And you've got to put that heavy lifting in. You do. And, you know, one of the things that I've noticed, because I've been working with, you know, I've been in sales for 30 odd years and I've been working with other sales teams for over 20 years. And what I have observed is that salespeople or sales professionals are very good at going fast and they're like really can they're pushed to go fast in fact you know it's a culture that pushes them along to go fast but they rarely go deep and so it is you talked about ignorance and I to do the things that you're talking about Marcus Someone has to be self-aware. And one of the things that I come across so much in sales leadership is experience blindness. They get, they're so experienced and they've dealt with so many things that it makes them close to something new. And they are really experienced and it's great, but they still have to be open. So when somebody comes to them, especially if they've not had any coaching training at all and they don't they think just telling someone what to do is helping them they will tell them how to do it based on their experience now if they haven't been doing the work 
in their own mindset, in their own development, doing the work to be super aware of what's going on in the outside world and how it's evolving and the psychology behind that, then even their advice is out of date. Well, um, it's Charles Lambden in uh, a fabulous article that he wrote, What is Incentivized is Policy, All Else is Lip Service. So check that out. And Lambden is L-A-M-B-D-I-N. And he talks about the difference between getting it right and getting it done and doing it right and so on. Oh, now um, that's and, interesting. Um, he, he's got a wonderful graphic in there. So you've got two circles bisecting, doing it right and getting the results. And where those two bisect, you get the high performers. But then you also have the bad actors. And that's the real killer. Um, because um, often what we will do is we'll fire people who are not getting it done or doing it right. But what we really need to be ready to do is do away with the people who are getting it done but not doing it in the right way. And whilst you may fire the people who are not getting it done or doing it right, uh, the ones who are getting it done but doing it wrong, you need to more da- yeah, they're more dangerous because Absolutely. they're just ticking the box. They're ticking the box, and that's and they send so a dangerous. bad message. Yeah, it's terrible. It's t- and that's how you end up with those toxic cultures you were talking about. Yeah, it's yeah. Everyone, no one's committed to anything unless it suits them. And you know, you mentioned ego, and I think ego is one of the biggest barriers to great leadership. Because the Absolutely. minute you are focused on your own well-being, your own image, it becomes impossible to help others. Your intention is to suit you. And I think great leaders are all about what's good for me, what's good for my team, what's good for the company, what's good for our customers, what's good for the planet, even if you take it at a bigger, uh, a bigger level. Um, and when you have that what is good for all concerned, that attitude, then you do the right thing. You know, it's it's not the easiest thing to sit someone down and give them feedback that might make them cry or make them feel uncomfortable for a bit. But if you manage it beautifully, then that person leaves that session feeling empowered and knowing how they, you know, what their next steps are to solving that or resolving that. And if any of you need a stark and painful example, we're a week after the insurrection on Capitol Hill. um, And you look at a leader um, who was all about not wanting to lose, um, inciting people because of selfish self-interest rather than the interest of the country. And again, if I upset a few of you who are supporters of the Orange Barrel, then I make no apology for it. What I see is so often um, organizations have managers and leaders where they think other people serve them. Service as a manager, as a leader, is an inverted pyramid. And it's the business, then the team, and then you. And you come a very, very poor third. It's not about you. The minute you make turn the pyramid the other way around and it's about you then you enter into the drama triangle and you become a persecutor or you become a rescuer or you become a victim 
And ego thrives on that drama. Yeah. And whenever you see an, anyone operating from one of those three positions, then that's their ego that's been hooked. Lee, we've come to the top of the hour. So um, this has been fascinating. I'd love to have you back. Thank you. I'd love to come back. So tell me this. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? The thing I'm wrestling with most is I want to make more ripples. I see that every person that run goes through our programs becomes a pebble that drops into that water that sends out ripples. So if they are a great leader, then they're, they're going to impact their salespeople who then become leaders if they've never done any of our programs. And then it goes on and on. So I want to make sure I'm dropping lots more pebbles. And I think that not everybody's ready for my message because there's still an awful lot of, um, you know, people saying, all that mindset stuff's fine, but we've got to deliver numbers. They really just don't get it. So that's my biggest challenge is in all of that noise, how can I reach the leaders and organisations that are sitting there thinking, there's just got to be a better way than this. You know, Harvard Business Review did a study happy salespeople generate 37% more sales. So why wouldn't you want to make them happy? So that's what I'm um, struggling with, more pebbles. Okay, Um, so there are three things that I'd like to uh, proffer to help you. The first is, and I know you're already going to be active in it, is the community that we're setting up, Sales a Force for Good. And for any of you who are listening, check it out. Essentially, we have a manifesto, which is how do we turn sales genuinely into the force for good that it should be? Because um, we've become a pariah rather than the profession that we should be. We're going to every month address a shitty, gnarly, horrible, difficult problem. And we're going to look at things like why speculators masquerading as investors are destroying perfectly good companies and how they drive undesirable behavior. The problems that managers face in terms of hiring well rather than hiring in a hurry. Looking at what we as salespeople can do in order to elevate our performance by serving the customer, by starting with them instead of uh, starting with our quota. Whether we should have quotas, whether uh, compensation schemes drive the wrong or the right behavior, what we measure, all this kind of stuff. And it's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult work and uncomfortable. So that's the first thing. The other element of this is that um, what we want to do is create an environment so that the next generation of salespeople who are going to become the next generation of managers and leaders. And in fact, 60% of managers are millennials now. So they're already in that position, but they've been very badly led. And I think badly let down uh, because of this 300 year old culture. So I think one of the areas that if you want to create ripples is you need to push against uh, that thinking. And so the challenge here is how do we take that message about mindset and put it in a context that the people who are trying to hit this month or this quarter's quota will see it for the value that it delivers. And interestingly enough, Salesforce 
released a piece of research on the podcast on the 2nd of December 2020. And what was really interesting about that was they came up with a fantastically obvious formula, which is customer success equals customer outcomes over, as in being more important than customer experience, where there's an awful lot of effort being thrown into that, okay, plus employee experience. Your customer outcomes are driven by having highly engaged uh, employees and highly engaged salespeople, pre-sales people, uh, customer success people, marketing people, operations people, finance people who are highly engaged in serving the customer's success. And this is where I think part of the problem lies in that um, so many organizations think that they sell product, but no one buys product. They rent the outcome. Yeah. And so if we start focusing on, well, why do, why do customers buy your stuff? Because I genuinely know for a fact that most people haven't got a clue. They think it's because of features. They think it's because of price. They think it's because of the brand, but actually very few people understand other human beings. And they certainly don't understand why their customers buy. Mm -hmm. And this is why the work that I'm doing with a company called Gap in the Matrix has really fired me up because it's answering exactly that question. Why do people behave and make decisions? And uh, why, why do they buy? What is it that you're doing to stop them? And really understanding how the brain works because the brain is essentially a neurological reward system. It's constantly looking for little hits of dopamine, little bits of oxytocin so that they feel like they belong. And when you start to apply this in the context of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, if they're moving down the hierarchy, then they're getting adrenaline and cortisol coursing through their brain. That doesn't, that's not the kind of thing the brain wants. What it wants is dopamine hits. It wants to feel good. And so learning about how you can nudge the prospect by making sure that you're giving them the chemical hit that they want. Now, that, I think, is where sales and marketing will really take on its renaissance. It's learning about that and how we can apply that in the context of mindset. That's, mm -hmm. that's the real uh, hit there. Um, okay, so tell me this. What, what are you reading, watching, listening to that you think other people should really pay heed to? There's not that many podcasts I listen to regularly, Marcus, but yours is one. So definitely, definitely. They're all hope they're already listening to it, so they probably already know that. But if someone asked me yesterday what leadership books I recommend, and I these are two books I think all leaders should read. And I listen to them on Audible because the author narrates them and I get a transmission of their energy too. And I listen to them over and over again. The first is Leaders Eat Last by Simon Sinek and Dare to Lead by Brene Brown. But I read a lot of books that are a bit esoteric. I read a lot of stuff about psychology and the way the brain operates. But if the kind of books that inspire me. I love The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. I just think that is a beautiful book. And Falling Upwards by Richard Raw, 
I read it many years ago, and it. How do you spell? Oh, R O H R. Richard Raw. He's actually a Franciscan Roman Catholic priest, uh-huh. but, but very outspoken. Um, not a conventional. What he's not priest-like, if you like, but he's obviously Christian in his views, and he. The book Falling Upwards is about how the first half of life is you doing your thing and the second half of life is what happens after you've been brought to your knees and you let go of your ego. And that was the book that put me on the path many years ago to realising that I, in many cases, was had deluded posit- positivity and that actually it was all right to say, you know what, this is crap. And, and, you know, I wasn't going to get any big, huge energy that was going to create, like, bring more crap to me just by saying this situation is not good. So Richard Raw has been incredible for that. And he's done a great Enneagram book from a Christian perspective, spiritual perspective, which for leaders will give them an understanding of different people types, what their type is, what a healthy type is and what an unhealthy type in whatever type you are. And going back to your other guest, the 12-step process, he's got one that's called Breathing Underwater, which is how you incorporate 12 steps into being a good, good human being. Excellent. So- well, Michael, Michael Brady-Waite also wrote Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts, How to Lead Your Lead Like Your Life Depends on It. And there he talks about how to implement and live the 12-step philosophy and how to uh, lead without masks, which is fascinating. I would also recommend Peter Brock's book, The Right Use of Power. I believe it's only available as an audio book, but really very inspiring. And Chasing Daylight by Eugene O'Kelly, How My Forthcoming Death Transformed My Life. Whilst it sounds like a morbid subject, he was a managing partner at KPMG, felt a bit ill, got given 90 days to live. And uh, he wrote this book. And it is just amazingly inspiring. And it puts it gives real perspective. And the other one, which I've mentioned many times before, but if you haven't read it yet, Keith Cunningham, The Road Less Stupid. It, I'll put it, it on my list. <laughs> it, every chapter is packed with questions you need to ask. And it's like being slapped around the head with the ugly mirror every single page. Oh, Um, perfect. I love anything anything that lights up something I don't know about myself, I get super excited about. Excellent. So tell me this, you've got a golden ticket and you can go back and advise the idiotly aged 23. What choice bit of advice would you give her that you know she would have probably ignored? Oh, man. I'm not sure. I know a lot of your guests say this. I am not sure I would change anything because some of my biggest nightmares have turned into some of my biggest gifts. You know, back then when I was more egocentric, when I was thinking I was a bee's knees, actually I needed to be brought down to my knees to go, oh, shit, I'm not that good. Well, surely the the advice that comes out of that is take more risks and fail more. 
Yeah, don't worry. I'm quite a big risk taker. I took loads of risks and failed. And so I think that maybe learn faster, be more self-reflective. That would have been good. That would have been good. Reflect more. And because I'm always looking forward instead of reflecting. You know, that's my, I have to make myself. I journal every day. What could I do better tomorrow? To make myself do that to highlight any shadow Excellent. parts of me that are lurking in the in the darkness. <laughs> Fabulous. So, Lee, how can people get hold of you? Get hold of me on LinkedIn. You can also look at my website, which is sales-consultancy.com. There's a lot of free resources on the website. There's a leadership blog that I do every week with lots of mindset thought-provoking ideas and definitely check out lee's book i sell and that's lowercase i capital s uh, and then el l unlocking your winning mindset so lee thank you thank you very much always an interesting conversational journey with you marcus likewise so this is marcus kauke signing off once again from the inquisitor podcast if you've enjoyed this conversation then please do comment, like, share, and subscribe. And if you think that you'd like to get in touch with me because you're looking to scale your technology business and you want to achieve hyper growth, and I'm talking 200% compound plus year on year, and you want to build a long-lived business and a business that has employees who are highly engaged and you become a destination employer where your customers are customers for life, then please email me at marcus at laughs-last.com. I'm only taking on two more clients this year. So if you want to get in, get in now. And in the meantime, I wish you safe passage and happy selling. Just go out and have some fun and learn and reflect. Bye-bye.